Uh, we there, before we I begin reading, there was an email sent out by uh, someone to the presbytery uh, of an article or a survey that was taken uh, by NPR and Barna, and um, there was a survey of the uh, most Bible-minded churches or areas in the United States, uh, and they were top 100. And so uh, I don't remember the list starting with the top 100 or the top 10, but was the concern of the email was the fact of turning the, the uh, chart around and saying what are the, what are the uh, top 10 least Bible-minded areas of the country. And number two was Albany, Schenectady, and Troy. And then and number 10 was Rochester. So the presbyter was very concerned saying, all these, most of the top ten are in our presbytery. So we pray that the Lord would uh, raise up workers and, and people to uh, work the fields. Uh, I know there is a um, burden on the heart of many in the presbytery. I know Pastor Roth has said that many times, is that, you know, uh, there's a church needed in, in the Albany-Troy area um, because... Uh, Except for Queensbury and then Boston Spa, there isn't, and, and Schenectady, there isn't another Presbyterian church, or excuse me, or a PCA church. There are Presbyterian churches with, with of course, rainbow uh, bar, banners all over the place. Uh, but um, there isn't another, there never is another PCA church till West Springfield, Massachusetts. So there's quite a difference. And um, when I was in New Lebanon, that's where I was kind of hoping to uh, establish something there at New Lebanon of making it a, uh, or transitioning it over to a PCA church uh, or a Presbyterian church. But uh, that's the reason why we go through the Bible, and that's why we, you want a pastor and a person who is going to be committed to preaching through the expositorily from one, one end of the book to the other so that you don't, you know, you don't, you don't just get topics, but you get, you get an expository uh, process of through the scriptures of looking, examining from part A to all the way to part Z of a letter, of a book, and uh, meeting all the subjects and topics in between so that people are Bible-minded. Uh, we, can stay in the, we can stay in the Psalms and we can stay in the, a couple of Paul's letters. We can stay in the Gospels and we could do that as a, as a, as a cycle every year and uh, people really, their understanding of the gospel, if they just hit topics, really, I don't believe, get any better than Hallmark cards. Uh, they just uh, hit a verse and preach on it and hit another verse and preach on it. And people are just, you know, they don't have anything to bring it all together. And that's, that's why I'm committed in praying that, that, that the person that God is preparing for you is somebody who brings that full word of God, the full counsel of God. And that's why we're looking at this obscure book called the book of Ecclesiastes. One reason is because I think it is a very relevant book, and it's not to say there are irrelevant books in the Bible, but this one is, I think, very relevant because it's speaking to uh, our day and age as never than as it was before, even though it's, it's timeless because the Word of God is timeless. I think uh, the, the, the teacher or koheleth or the preacher or the assembler or the convener, uh, the name means... Um, what he's trying to tell us is, as we've said, that uh, there's lots of people who are out there, maybe in some churches as well, but out there in our country 
who are thinking that, you know, they're okay with God. Uh, we're finding that this, and we're going to look at today, that, that uh, the preacher or the teacher is not a secularist from a perspective that he's an atheist, that he doesn't have an understanding of God, but he has an understanding of God. And I believe that mo- there's lots of people, I mean, there's lots of atheists out there, but lots of people you meet have some sort of affinity or have some nerve about that that is spiritual. They have some sense of God as he or she may be, as they'll say, or some some. Uh, it factors, some tree or some mountain or s- worship experience of being in nature or something like that. So they know that there's something greater than themselves. They don't know what it is. We know who he is. So that's why I think this is important. But also I think this again gets us to be people who understand the word of God and are approved by God because we desire to learn this book. Uh, this is something that the Word of God tells us that we need, to, you know, we need to dig. We need to dig deeply. If we dig for treasure, we need to dig for it as the Proverbs teach us about the wisdom. Make sure we get it. Make sure we have it. And so I think it's uh, very important that uh, we ask God to help us come to an understanding of all the books of the Bible. Not our favorites, but those that uh, teach us everything about the Lord, and it teaches us about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's what I pray that God does through me today for you as we look at, at uh, this, uh, this book. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has, already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who, is, who, is, uh, who were over Jerusalem before me. And by my, my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray. God, we pray for your wisdom to be our guide today. We pray for your spirit to be with us, that he would illumine us to your 
great word today. Illumine us to what we've not only heard here and just recently, but all the words that we've heard from your word, Father. We pray that you would help us to connect dots and to see the great story of the Bible, of how you have promised us to be with us, that you have called us, you have chosen us, you are with us through this exodus from this world as we long for this new world to come. Father, we pray that you would help us to be able to realize who we are and how we are to live and how we are to think in a way that we can talk and speak to the people who are not aliens and strangers in this world, but find themselves quite at home here. Father, we pray that you will use us as people who work in their hearts, that we try to persuade, we take with great burden their lostness and their wanderings in this world. And Father, use us as instruments, we pray, for your glory and grace, and that by your great mercy, and pray for your will, that you would bring revival to this church and to this community and to this country and to many places around the world. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the key words as we looked at last time... uh, The word vanities is the word vapor or mist or futility, uh, emptiness. Uh, A technical term that scholars use is wackiness. (laughs) They just say it's a wacky world. It's all just wacky. Um, That's used 39 times in this book. Then the word under the sun or the phrase under the sun is almost 30 times and that is telling us Today we see the word under heaven is synonymous with the word under, under, under the sun. It's synonymous with or it's pointing us to the perspective of being earthly bound, of having a horizontal view only with, from, from the preacher's perspective, just like I said, we, most of the people that we have as family or friends or we work with have sometimes once in a while a vertical thought. But yet that little vertical thought is what they base their eternity on. They base their, all of their eternity on some little thought that God's got to love them because they're not as bad as the person sitting next to them. And God grades on a curve, and the curve is, that person, I know some really bad people, I'm not that bad. And I try to be good. So under the sun is this earthbound view of how, what it's like, and the teacher is going to teach us, what it's like to think and live in a world that's horizontal only, and what we look, what, how we, it looks to us as we live under the curse. And this is what he's looking at. Not any hope of gospel, any hope of eternity. He's not, he doesn't, it's not that the teacher doesn't know about eternity, because he speaks about it, but he has no hope. He's a hopeless person. He, he kind of wringing his hand and saying, I don't know. I mean, I know there's a God, but, you know, I, I just, I can't really know that much about him. And so I'm just going to walk through this world, and, and, the, and the reason why we look at this is because it's wisdom literature, because it really asks these questions. And as I said that the, a couple of weeks ago, the book, of, Psalms, book of, of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes asked these big questions as I talked about uh, the... Uh, the song from Burt Bacharach of What's It All About, Alfie? Is it, is it just, I wrote it down, is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about when we sort it all out, Alfie? And this is what 
the teacher or caliph is doing, he is by using the name and the reputation and the, the uh, uh, sort of foil of Solomon as a person who has the wherewithal to do this searching out. And he's hyperbolically considered the wisest man in the world and a person who has all the ability, the money, the power, the position, the time to search all these things out. And when he says, at the, when he says it all out, he says, life stinks and then you die. So I'm here to depress you even more today to even take us further into this point to realize that you and I know what it's like to live like that. We know what it's like to have that perspective. We need to be remembered of how how deep that is and how terrible and how hopeless it is so that when we talk to our neighbors, when we talk to our, our co-workers, when we talk to our family members, we are we're always planting and we're always watering. And we're always considering, what can we say to them? What questions can we ask them? Because that's what this is all about, is it not? I mean, the Bible's full of questions. What does a man profit? What is truth? Why do you call me good? You know, why, 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 why? All the time. Full of questions. And we see lots of questions in this book as well. And it's good for us to ask people questions because we want to know where they're coming from. We want to let them know that we care of what they're thinking, even though we think it's wacky. We don't tell them it's wacky. We let them find out themselves, hopefully through our inquiries, our spending time with them, our digging deep into their worldview, that they come to the point where they see it starting to crack and really not holding any weight. So that's what God, I think, is calling us to do, is to be engaging and to, I think, from this book is really telling us that people are banking on something. They're banking on something to get them through each day, and when it's all over, that they've, they've lived a certain life and lived a certain philosophy that's going to carry them somewhere beyond. Where? They don't know. They hope it's better. Maybe it's, you know, starting all over again. Coming as another person. Coming as an animal. Or who knows? But we need, to, we need to be able to cause them to think it out and say, you know, this is important. If you think this is all in eternity, why? Why do you think this is important? I think it's important with you. As I said the last time, we looked at this and we, we, he sees... The, the, the teacher um, is being introduced here. As I said last time, my perspective is that uh, most of the book is an autobiography or a, a uh, monologue with uh, the, this person who carries this uh, picture of or of character of Solomon. And if you see that the third person is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, it's like a narrator, a, a kind of a second person who is introducing him and then we see, that, like today, chapter uh, 1, verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, now is in the first person. And this is the way it goes all the way to chapter 12. And when you turn to chapter 12, you see that there's this summary. And he goes, no longer is it in first person. It goes to chapter uh, uh, 12, verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher. And notice, the preacher also taught people knowledge 
weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with care, the preacher sought to find words. Notice, he sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collective sayings that are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. What he is trying to say that the, the, the teacher and the preacher didn't find the answer. In all of his studying, he came up with words, and he tried to find words, and it says he came up with some truths. But he doesn't have the definitive answer, because in the end, as we learn in the beginning, it's all meaningless. It's all empty. It's all a vapor. It doesn't make any difference. It's futile. So why? And that's, that's where we're, we're going today, is we're going now and starting in to chapter 1, verses 12 and, and 18, and, uh, 12 to, uh, verses 12 to 18. And remember in verses 1 through 11, it was this monotony, this kind of poem that uh, is the, the, the speaker or the narrator gives us about what we're looking at life and looking at nature and saying there's, you know, when, you know that there's this, this rhythm, because you can see the way it's written, there's this round and round, this with, rhythm of the sun and, this, and the wind and the, you know, the, the water and all the elements that we have of nature that we look at and say, wow, it's great how it works together, but a person who's trying to find the answer looked at this and saying, it's meaningless. This is, it's wearisome to me. And what does it say? And he says in uh, um, verse 3 is, is very important, which is 23 times, what does a man gain? What does it profit a person? What gives them long-lasting satisfaction? Now, we're going to find out that when the teacher is teaching us, he's not saying that all of these things in life that he finds out that are meaningless in the end did not bring him any satisfaction. He'll tell us that he found some reward and he found some satisfaction. But he is saying, what does it last? Is there anything out there that lasts, that has long lasting, that fills my heart, that fills that gaping hole in my heart to tell me who I am and why am I here? And, and when it's all said and done, where do I go? What we see in chapters, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, as I said, verses uh, chapter 19 of the Psalms, the heavens declare, we see that the creation speaks forth and proclaims the glory of God. It reflects and proclaims the, war, the, the, the glory of God. What we saw in chapter 1 is that that reflection is gone. It now illustrates frustration. So we look at this and say, wow, you see the differences of our eyes. We see the differences now how we look at the world. Now, we're not to say that we're not going to say that the rat's going to win someday. We're not going to say that it's monotony. We're not saying we're in, a, we're in a rat race. We're not saying that, boy, I'm just tired of this, getting up and doing this, and why do I go to work? And what do I do? I'm not going to say that you and I are never going to ask those questions. But ultimately, we now have an answer for that because the Word of God tells us that we don't have to come to that conclusion and say, I don't know, it's all meaningless when we know it's not meaningless when we have Christ. makes a big difference because there is a great prophet. There is a great profit in knowing Jesus. Being known by God, as Jeremiah says, I boast that God knows me. Not that I know him, but that he even knows me. And like we looked at Psalm 139 last week, how wonderful are your thoughts about me? This is what's overwhelming to us. Koaleth hasn't got that in his, in his tool chest at all. 
And that's what the teacher could be, the narrator could be, as he says, as we looked in, the, if you look at back at chapter 12, my son. It may be a father teaching his son using the character of Solomon as this person who has wise, who has all the ability to do this stuff. I mean, certainly fits it. It could be Solomon. I'm not going to, you could put a gun to my head. I won't tell you I'm going to die going to the grave that it's not Solomon. Many people think it is Solomon, but I don't think so. Lots of other great people who are great teachers and, and, and great seminaries don't think that necessarily Solomon taught this, but that it is by a narrator teaching someone, maybe a, a, his son, or convening somebody together to teach this. He goes on and he talks about the last part of chapter 11, just to bring some people to where, just to remind you what we learned the last time, because I know that... Um, you know, sometimes we don't always remember what we said the week before, or uh, there's been a couple weeks, so sometimes we don't remember what's been said. But as we look at uh, verse 11, he says, there is no remembrance of former things. There will be no remembrance of any of the later things yet to be among those who come after. I, wrote, I, I looked up some uh, uh, verses, or I mean some poems or some statements Mark Twain says, shortly before his death, he says, A myriad of men are born, they labor and sweat and struggle, they squabble and scold and fight, they scramble for little means advantages over each other, age creeps up upon them, infirmities follow, they, those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. It comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth has ever given to them, for them, and they vanish from the world where they were of no consequence, a world which will lament for them a day and then forget them forever. Shakespeare in Macbeth says, Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So there are lots of people out there. There's, you know, you're looking, you can, you know, um, um, just... Different philosophies out there of absurdism and nihilism and existentialism that deals with all these questions but don't have the answer. Some say there is no answer. Some say you may look for the answer, but you're not going to find it. So try because that's worthwhile, but you won't find the answer. And some are saying you're the center of the world. You're the one. It's your existence. It's your experience that determines everything. And people are buying it, whether they consider themselves their philosophers or not. People who have never read a philosophy in their life adopt it because they hear it in the movies, they hear it on their soap operas, they hear it in their books, or they read it in their books, they see it in the movies, they feel it and see it in their families because they have no other uh, voice speaking to them that is telling the truth. That's what we're here for. That God uses you and me to be a different voice in this darkness that is under the curse. So, we go to chapter 12, verse 12. And he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Some people say, here it is. This is certainly Solomon. 
not necessarily so, because he'll say that he'll say something that we're going to look at later on that makes it kind of sound like it, Solomon. Why would Solomon say this? But he says people understand that he's a king or somebody in a position, or that's his character that he has power. And I've applied my heart. Now he's saying here that he's intentionally doing this to seek and to search out by wisdom. Man, what other better thing can you do than to get wisdom to try to find the truth? But when we're going to listen to this wise man speak, he's going to say things that, are, that seem so contradictory to what the wisdom literature tells us. That we're going to say, where is this guy coming from? But he is, he's intentionally doing is he's saying, I have, I'm, I'm, I'm not just putting my emotions into this. I'm putting my actual will. It's a volitional act that I'm doing. It's applying everything of my being into searching out by wisdom all that is done, everything that is done on earth, everything. And this is what is mind-boggling is this next phrase. It is unhappy. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. Notice what his, his view of God. He's unhappy. It's not just unhappy. This is a deep, very particular word. In Hebrew, it's called evil. This is an evil thing that God has given us. That's how strong this is. It is evil of God. It's an evil thing that God has given us. An unhappy business. Why is it evil? Because in the end, I can't find out the answer. That's why people get angry. That's why people are looking and they have angst and they try to find the answer of life and they try this and it fails and they try that and it fails. And he just says it's because God has given the children of men, all of humanity, notice now, notice how he phrases, to be busy with. Now I remember some teachers that I had in school that had things to do and used to give me busy work that I hated. Did you have that teacher just saying, well, I'm not busting on teachers. I'm just telling you, I know some teachers, and I had some terrible teachers, who would just give you stuff to do just because they had other things to do. So, okay, do this busy work. Go in here and outline these chapters in this book. Ugh. You know, who wants to do that? Who wants to outline chapters in the book? Now, I've got to tell you, it's a great thing to do. I enjoy doing it now. But as a kid or in school going, who wants to do this? Or just here's some math problems. Just finish them out. You know, you knew, you just had that feeling that the teacher had something else to do and they just gave you busy work. Now, you can see the attitude I have. This is exactly the attitude that the preacher has towards God saying, he just given us an evil thing just to keep us busy, just to expend energy. I mean, wow, do you think that's in the Bible? But here it is right here. Why? It's because it's the frustration of humanity without God trying to find the answers. Notice verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all of it is vanity. It's like striving after the wind. Now this word striving after the wind is used many times. It can be running after the wind. It can be trying to catch the wind. It can be trying to shepherd the wind. It can mean trying to feed upon the wind. It doesn't make any difference. It's all about wind. Correct? Try to go open your mouth and stand outside in a windy day and see if you can eat the wind. 
Or put yourself outside and say that you can, you know, you'll get a, you'll get a, a, a gate and put it in here and try to put a, 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 some wind in a, in a paddock or in a fenced-in area. You can't do it. Or run after it and try to catch it. And when you catch the wind, what do you got if you got, if you can? Nothing. That's how futile is. That's how crazy he's talking about here. I mean, here's this wise man who calls himself Solomon, or something like, doesn't call himself Solomon, but is coming under that, under that title or that, that character. And he says, everything done under the sun is just meaningless. It's just meaningless. Well, wow. I mean, you can see why, you know, Nietzsche or, or Kierkegaard, or who was, who was a, you know, had a Christian kind of existential uh, perspective, he wouldn't be so bad, but, you know, Albert Camus or uh, um, somebody else you could think of, I'm trying to think, John Paul Sartre. Uh, Albert Camus wrote something here I thought was pretty interesting because I was, as I've been telling you, it's, you know, the, 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 uh, the preacher isn't completely a secularist. He's not devoid of God. He's living in a cursed world, but he has in the back of his mind that God is doing something. He has some understanding of God. It's just like, the, it's just like uh, Job. Job is full of stuff that sounds so heretical and sounds so crazy, but this is what this book is about because it... The, the meaning of these kinds of wisdom literature is to prick you. It's to, it's to kind of provoke you. That's what good literature does when it comes from wisdom. It makes you think. And that's what we want to be. We don't want to be people who trample over people. We don't want to trample over their worldview. We want to prick people so that they think. Why do you think the way you think? Why do you say the things that you say? That's not unheard of. Why do you like the Yankees, some Boston Red Sox would say? Nobody's going to hit you in the face for that. Well, unless you're wearing a baseball, Yankee baseball cap in Boston. Why do you, you know, Boston Bruins, New York Rangers, anything you think of. You know, you can have these conversations. I mean, I remember raising next door to my buddy Richie down the street. We were the same class all through school. We graduated together. His two brothers were the same age as my two brothers. They graduated together. We played sports together. You know, my family was Republicans. They were staunch Democrats. I remember sitting him arguing with him about Kennedy Nixon when we were in grade school. He was a Boston Red Sox fan. I was a New York Yankee fan. You know, I mean, what else could you think of? I mean, we just, Giants versus the Jets. It's, you know, it's just this, but you can talk about things like that to people without them swinging at you. We can do the same thing if we respect and we look at this person who's created in the image of God with dignity and look at him and say, I really care what you think. Not that I'm filling my pockets or someday I can smash you with a hammer. And this is, what, this is what this book is causing us to do and other people to do and hopefully give us questions so we can ask people, what makes you think? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Life does stink. Life does seem like it's a rat race. You know, and I've talked about that before. We come alongside of Call us a saying, he goes, but he takes it to a level which I believe lots of people brought it to, and I know that I did once in my life, saying, Lord, what kind of God is this that he does this stuff? He becomes really irate with God. He's rather not very dignified when he's speaking of God. And it doesn't get easier. Notice what he says here. Does, it, does, does uh, anything give any long-lasting satisfaction? He says, no. Now he gives a little proverb. We have, you know, Solomon-like, we get little proverbs. Some places, chapters of little, little kind of pithy statements and proverbs that he throws at us. But here's a proverb. 
Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be, made, cannot be counted. He's saying here, what's, he's talking about not being crooked like, you know, the crooked guy down the road, or you're being a crooked uh, baseball player or, or a card player or something. He's talking about things that are bent. And he's talking about everything under the sun. Everybody is bent. We're all bent. We're all depraved. That's what he's talking about. Who can change? I can't change anybody. You can't change anybody. We can try to change people, but we don't change people. God changes people, but we don't. What he's saying here, what is crooked cannot be made straight from a horizontal level. And what he's going to say in chapter 7, verse 13, it is God who made it crooked, so what makes you think that you could ever straighten it? He even sticks another jab for the Lord and even makes it even deeper. Because all the words in here about God are Elohim. It's not about Yahweh here. It's all about Elohim. It's a general statement of God being the God over all creation. Not a covenantal God, but a God over the God of all creation, Elohim. And he says, what is lacking can't be counted. I can look in my pocket and try to start counting $100 bills, but if I don't have one in my pocket, I can't count them. And he says, What's you, what we don't have, we can't count. I can't count money that I wish I would have. Or I can't count things that I wish I could have. If they don't exist, they don't exist. It's like saying, I'm going to count all these apples on this pulpit right now. Well, how can I count them if there's no apples there? And that's what he's, the absurdity of it. He's saying, you can't bend, you can't straighten out what's bent. You, cannot, you can't count what you don't have. And you don't have anything that's going to give you any lasting satisfaction. So that's the problem. He's saying here, I've come to this. He hasn't even started yet. He just started this experiment. He's going to take us on these experiments along the way using you know, self-indulgence, using living wisely. He's going to talk about morality. He's going to talk about work. And then he's going to talk about a lot of other things. But he's all going to end up saying that what? It's, it doesn't make any difference. It's empty. In the end, it doesn't make a difference. It's long-lasting. It brings no long-lasting satisfaction to your life. I said in my heart, verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, don't you think, if this was Solomon, (laughs) why he would say, there's only been two people who have been king in Jerusalem. After that, the kingdom split. There was no longer a king. Only, it was king of Judah and then the king of all the other tribes in the northern kingdom. After, after Solomon's sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, made a mess of things. Well, Rehoboam was the, was the guy that made a mess of things. Jeroboam was an opportunist. After this, there's nobody else. So what is he saying here? I've acquired great knowledge and have surpassed my father David in all kinds of wisdom. I mean, that's pretty low. I don't think, he, I don't think Solomon would say that he did that to his father, saying that before everybody else came, you know, they're, they're not as smart as me. So I think this is where this is, this hyperbole. He's, he's setting the stage, saying that there ain't nobody else but me. If I can't find it, you're never going to find it. That's what he's trying to say to the listeners and the people he's convened. If I've done all these experiments and you can't find it, what thinks that you, who thinks you're going to be any better than me to try to find it? 
So he says, and my heart has had great experience in wisdom and knowledge. Well, no, no, I, I, certainly, I certainly agree with that. And we can turn to uh, 1 Kings. We can find out exactly who Solomon was. If we turn to 1 Kings, we realize in 1 Kings chapter 4. First Kings chapter 4, we go to verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Quite a span. And for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than all these other people here that... I'm not going to explain name. His fame was in all the surrounding nation. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees and of the cedar that was in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts and of birds and of the reptiles and of fish. All the people of, a people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So you can understand why they would use Solomon. Or if it could be Solomon, Solomon. This guy had it all. This guy had so much wisdom. He was politically powerful. He was known for being able to talk about all these different subjects. So it makes sense that he would use this person, Solomon. But if this guy came up short, what makes you think that you and I or anyone else is going to come up not but short? Keep your finger there in, uh, in 1 Kings and your hand there. And, and then we move on and he says, I've applied my heart. Now, no, he's, he's not. He, this isn't something I'm just, I'm just sitting around and just chilling and just thinking about things. This guy, if this is a, an intentional research. This guy really spent time doing this. This is the impact of these words. It's his real gut doing this. I've applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. It's not talking about a mental issue here. He's talking about immorality. He says, why not? Why not try it? I've got to see what's, where truth is. So he tried, he tried being a wise and he tried living like a fool. Now look at how big of a fool he became, Solomon anyway. If you turn with me to chapter 11... Of First Kings, he says, <clears throat> chapter eleven of First Kings. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomites, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, "You shall not enter into marriage with them; neither shall they uh, with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods." But Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. He, he had uh, his, his uh, wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned, him, turned away his heart from other gods, after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after the asterisk of, God, of the goddess of uh, so, uh, the Sidonians, uh, kind of like a totem pole worship, and, and uh, 
Then he said in verse 6, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did, what, did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place of Chemosh to the um, abomination of, uh, of Moab. And Moloch, who they, who they used to sacrifice children to. They actually, actually let children go into this fire and ch- kill their children as sacrifices to this deaf, dumb, blind God. In the mountain of east of Jerusalem. And so he did all, all this for his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their God. So he's true. This is, this is Solomon-like. He went from... Pure, he went from wisdom of being able to do all this stuff and knowing everything to the fact, to the other side of the spectrum, that he was going to just try everything out. And he says, I did. And he goes, you know what? He goes, even after going there. Now, he didn't go into it with a partying attitude saying, wow, this is going to be great. We're taking, his, we're taking his word for it that he went into it with an, an investigation, with a way of inquiry, of going into this, trying to see if there was wisdom in this guy. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't enjoy it. But I'm just saying that he found out when he looked at this and saying, is this really bringing me satisfaction? And the answer is, as he says, and I applied my heart, and after I have perceived in verse 17 that this is also but a striving after the wind. It's meaningless. And then he comes up with this proverb again. Ignorance is bliss. I remember teaching at, 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 the, at a, when I was teaching in middle school for when I worked for Bosey's as a teaching assistant. I never saw, I never saw this poster before. Right in the middle of the classroom of this, this class uh, was this big, uh, big orangutan with his lips sticking out and saying, ignorance is bliss. And every time I read this, I can think of that picture of that orangutan with his lips sticking out saying, you know, he says, for in much wisdom is much vexation. Not just, not a little bit, but just extreme irritation. It doesn't seem, that you, you know, it just doesn't seem like it would be in the Bible that someone who talk about wisdom like this, he says, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. One person wrote, uh, the more you understand, the more you ache. The more we understand, and this is what my concern is for children, is that we keep children children, is that we don't give children more than they can handle, because we don't want children to ache in places that they don't deserve to ache in yet. They don't have an ability, and they don't have a, a process, they don't know how to process stuff that's on TV or coming on the news or coming in commercials or coming in conversations or coming in movies or people are just letting their kids watch and do anything they want to. These kids don't have an idea how to process some of these bigger issues in life. And this is the problem. They don't know. And, they, and it causes tremendous, I think, consequences in their lives in the long term. And so he is saying here, because, you know, don't you wish sometimes in your own mind that you could go back and not know all the stuff that you know right now? I mean, I know, I think about that, I I just, I wish I didn't even know about that stuff. But we're growing up, and we're adults, and we're supposed to take care of these things. We're supposed to be as family members, protectors of our children and of our families. So we need to know what to protect them from. But not for the sense of finding satisfaction, It's okay. It's all right. It's not going to hurt you. No, God doesn't make us a missionary to places that can destroy us. 
but we need to know about them. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The result of his experiment is that initially he doesn't take him anywhere. It leaves him exactly where he started off. He doesn't have that answer. And he's angry about it. And he's angry with God about it because he just thinks that God has given them a task that they can't find out. They can never find the answer. And you know what? The answer is absolutely right. Without God, you will never find the answer. You'll sit there and grind your wheels and spin your wheels and smoke them and do everything thinking you've got traction. And the Bible teaches us, and as Coalith realizes, it doesn't lead anywhere. From a, because we live in a world that's bent. It's cursed. Turn with me to Genesis. I mean, this is what, this is what we, you know, you've got to go back to Genesis all the time. Because this is where it all began. When we want to think about why, we look at Peter, and Peter says, be careful, because you're going to fight, you're going to face all kinds of tribulations in your life. Why? Because we're bent. The world is bent. And it's not going to, you and I are not going to fix it. We can heal all the sick people. We can rip out poverty from the face of the earth, which we can't. Neither one of those things. And if we could, we're still going to be bent. And so we have a mechanism now to understand what it is to be bent, and we gladly understand that we're bent, because when we understand we're bent, we know that we need to be fixed. But you go back to the garden and you say, what happens? You know, Genesis 3, Adam is supposed to be the protector. Adam is supposed to be the witness. He's supposed to guard this is why it's important as we think of elders in the session of being guard. We guard because we don't want the serpent to enter in here willingly and just easily. But Adam, that was Adam's fault. Adam, not just eating the, the fruit from his wife, it was that he did not do his job. He did not protect and watch over the garden. He allowed the serpent to make his way in here and then believe him. And what was the consequence of this? Well, he looked at his wife and she was naked and he was naked. And so there was what? Alienation between them. They hid from God because now there was alienation between them and God. Then we see that the ground, as he says in um, verse 17, and Adam, he, he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat it. Curses the ground because of you. Now, the world and the earth and nature is bent because of us, because of our sin. In pain you shall eat all of days of your life. There's going to be frustration. He's telling us right here, it wasn't meant to be frustrating. God wasn't surprised by it. God had a plan for it. It wasn't plan B, it was plan A. God never has a plan B. It's always plan A. It wasn't caught off. Oh my goodness, look at what they did. Now I've got to go back to the, my, my study and figure how to figure this out. He knew, he knew what was going to happen by giving this test to Adam and Eve. And he provided the way because he says to her, but you notice in verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, you shall turn, turn to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you return to the dust and you shall return. But then we see in the beginning of this whole thing, he gives hope, even though it's going to be cursed, and even though it's going to be bent, he says in verse 
to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain. You shall bring four children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Oh, excuse me. Um, no, I'm sorry, verse uh, 15. Uh, I will put enmity between you and, your wom- the, and the woman, and between you and your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He's talking to the serpent here. And he's, this is the first gospel. This is the first good news of the Bible because it was needed in the very beginning because the world became bent and someone needed to redeem it. And he was talking about Jesus here. Jesus has come to crush the head of Satan and to redeem you and me from being bent in this world. So we don't, we look at, we're going to be frustrated by the bentness of the world. We're going to be frustrated by your bentness. Your being bent is going to bug me, as I've said before, and my being bent is going to bug you. It's the way the world works. It's the way creation has happened to be because of the curse. But it doesn't have to be that way. And that's what we tell everybody else. Ah, I agree with you, but you know what? I live differently. I think differently. Why? How do you think? Because I know that I don't need to be held hostage to things being monotonous and being bent. Because God has given me a different perspective about life. God has redeemed me from being bent. He sent someone who has never been bent, and his name is Jesus. And he took and he's redeemed my heart. And someday, as you see, my body getting older and older and older. And we're going to talk about that in the book in here in Ecclesiastes. He's going to tell us that someday your bodies are going to be redeemed. And you're going to have a perfect mind and a perfect heart and a perfect body. And you're not going to be subject to this thing. And you're not going to be sitting around and saying, I hope it's all going to be okay in the end. How many funerals do you go to where people see the casket in front of them, but they have no idea where they are? Oh, he's watching over you now. Great idea, great sentiment. Send it to Hallmark. Because it's wacky. It's not even true. Your father was looking down on you on the day when you hit that home run. I could tell he was applauding. Great things. But we can't join in that, folks, because we know it's not true. Now, if we find out they're believers... That's a different story. But we just can't join into the pagan ideas of people. It's, but you've got to do it delicately. You don't do it at funerals. You don't do it at the reception after a funeral. This is where we, this is where we have the grace and the mercy of Christ, where, where he doesn't, you know, a, you know, a reed, of, a reed he doesn't break and bend and burst and just crush. We've got to do with things with as if this was us. How do we treat these people? How would Jesus go and talk to these people? He would come around them and be with them, and he wouldn't even tell them, but we'll pray that God would open an opportunity somewhere down the road where you could tell them the truth and not shatter them. But we can't join into this and saying, oh, they're better off. They're not suffering now, so they're better off. And my heart and your heart, knowing that they're not believers, if you think they are not believers, they had nothing to do with Jesus, you know, right, they're not better off. In fact, they're infinitely worse. That's difficult in your family to think about that. Is it not that your family members are infinitely worse now because they didn't know Jesus? I mean, that that's, breaks my heart to think about that. This is, this is why it's so important for us to have these things in our pocket to hide the word of God in our hearts, to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Because we don't need to look for the books on the shelf for wisdom. 
We go to 1 Corinthians in closing. Chapter 1. Too many markers. <laughs> no, I had it marked. Here it is. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is not my power. It's not your power. It's the power of God. It's not your power to change anybody. It's not my power to change anybody. It's the power of God to change people. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, the very wisdom of God. We have the ability, folks, to be able to be instruments used by God to actually see someone's life change. It happened to you. It happened to me. It could be through, I mean, I read it through a Gideon's Bible. I came from, and I, we went to a Billy Graham crusade, Susie and I. Some people, you know, heard it on a, you know, in a prison. I remember people, we worked in the prison ministry, and the people would tell me that, you know, they would make cigarettes out of the pages of a Gideon's Bible, and then one day he went down there, and there was John 3.16. It hadn't been ripped out to make a cigarette, and he became a Christian. Or it can be just from some way and somehow that God chooses to change somebody's heart. Or it could be from the very encouragement and the very smile and the very comfort and the great love and the great patience that you and I showed someone. Someday that you're going to, we're going to find out in heaven that it was because of your love and because of your words that somebody came to know Christ. But it's not your power. So don't get frustrated with it. It's not your work. So don't get impatient with it. Because God knows who they are. They're not strangers to God. They're strangers to us. And they're strangers to God, but not, not in God's mind. They know. He's already chosen them before the foundation of the earth. I wish someplace I could find elect somewhere on their foot, on their heel, on their hair, somewhere. It was tattooed somewhere that they were elect. I would feel better. But we don't have that marking on our head anywhere. We don't have it on our body anywhere. Only God knows who he's going to call. So what is it? We join in with the world understanding their demise. We understand their frustration. We understand their darkness. We understand that they have no hope. And what do we do? We have an answer for them. When God opens up that door, when the Holy Spirit breaks it open for us, when he opens it up a crack, we are ready to give that answer for the Lord's love in our life. It's the power of God. And that's why Ecclesiastes is so important, because it brings us back to that frustration that no matter what you try, no matter what you do, these people are banking on something. They're banking on who they are, what they've got, something. To, in the end, to hopefully that it turns the tide and causes the, the, the balances to be weighted on one end or the other. 
But in Christ, we realize wisdom is, as Proverbs 1 tells what, it's the very fear of the Lord. The very fear of God. Not shaking, but the understanding of his awe and his reverence. In the book of Ecclesiastes, you can't find him going to the Bible anywhere. You can't, mention him. You can't see him mentioning a scripture verse. He never mentions the fear of God anywhere in that book. But yet, in the Proverbs, we see Solomon talking that the wisdom of God in chapter 8 is life. But in the world out there, they don't have that kind of wisdom. People don't have that ability. So our job is not to be the, the, the least Bible-minded church or people in the area, but that we're, we, we take this serious, that God has called you and me to do something, and very important, and that is, is to be able to be a witness for his love as we preach Christ crucified, which is boggling for the world, but it's not up for you and me to convince them. We just tell them what our hope is, in, and it's in Christ. And we enter into that world of their frustration. So I hope and pray... And as we, we, we work our way through this, it's not to depress anybody, but it can be very depressing to read this book and go, I know, I mean, we can, we're going to feel like that. Maybe sometimes you're going to feel depressed because you just feel that it's over and you can't deal with it anymore. And maybe this is a place where you're going to be reminded, saying, yeah, the rat doesn't win. Jesus did. Then it's worth coming, is it not? Because you're not going to get this anyplace else. This is why we're here. This is why you belong to a church. This is why you come. Because this is where we are reminded of the grace of God. So let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this message today, Lord, that came to us from a most unlikely book. A a book that seems so out of sorts, out of your word. But Lord, we we understand its intent. It is... It is given to us so that it would be provoking to the, to the lost, provoking to those who are still living, living under the curse without any hope. We live under the curse, but we don't live without hope. We have hope. We've read in Romans, Lord, in chapter 8, that even creation can't wait for the redeemed to be redeemed because that means that creation will be redeemed. It is groaning because of its being bent Not because it did anything wrong, but because humanity did something wrong. And who did it? It was God who put a curse on it. And so, Lord, let us take the gift that you've given to us of our faith seriously. Let us rejoice in knowing who you are. Let us not take the sacraments or the church or the word of God or anything that you've given to us to remind us of who we are. Lord, impress upon us the joy of knowing you in our salvation. Let us be refreshed as we leave here today, knowing that, wow, we didn't deserve it, but for some reason, God, you loved me, and you died for me, and now you want to use me. So, Lord, I pray for those who are here today for opportunities, opportunities to be a witness for Christ, Lord, in a most unlikely way. It is my prayer for them. In Jesus' name, amen.